0: have you hallo welcome everybody welcome back to the classic english literature podcast where as you know rhyme gets its reason today's episode venus venison and venom the poetry of sir thomas wyatt today We're going to look at a proper Renaissance poet, a bona fide courtier, none of your ambiguous medieval early modern muckers about like old John Skelton. Oh no, this is some proper rhyming from the Henrician world. Today, kids, we're going to meet Sir Thomas Wyatt, uh, the elder BT dubs. Before we make our introductions, I ask that you please subscribe to the podcast and It'd be great if you could take a moment to post a positive review. That would help so much. More reviews make the podcast more visible to new listeners, and I'd really like to have as many folks dropping in as possible. Please also share this podcast with friends, family, and colleagues, anyone you think might enjoy it. I appreciate all the support. So, dear listeners, Sir Thomas Wyatt the Elder. Sir Thomas, my dear listeners, born in 1503 to a wealthy family, Sir Thomas Wyatt received a quality education at both St. John's College in Cambridge and the University of Padua in Italy. Entering the court of Henry VIII in the 1520s, he served as an ambassador to France and Spain, and one of his official positions was the clerk of the... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the clerk of the king's jewels i know i shouldn't laugh dear listener i know i should be better than that but i can't help it it makes me giggle like a naughty schoolboy but my sniggering may not be baseless given that wyatt was also known as something of a wolf a player as the kids say do they do they still say that he's reputed to have had romantic affairs with several court ladies And there is the persistent rumor that Anne Boleyn, who would become Henry VIII's wife and then about nine inches shorter, was the object of his especial affection. Now, I've no doubt he fancied her. She has the reputation of being quite magnetically charismatic. Yet, evidence of sexual congress can neither be confirmed nor denied. But his poems are quite suggestive and... Scholars and amateurs both have pored over them for confirmation. Alas, ambiguity exists. And to be sure, Wyatt was imprisoned by Henry in 1536 following Anne's rather precipitous fall from grace. But he was eventually restored to favor, only to be flung back into Chokey once more on a charge of high treason. Learning curve is steep for this fella. He dies soon after his release, perhaps from some infection that he caught in the cells. So given the rather topsy-turvy and capricious nature of Henry's court and its consequences for Sir Thomas, we should not be surprised to find that his poetry, while often bitter, frequently longs for a world of stability and honesty, a life free from the duplicity and doubleness of the court. Ah, But beware, friends, for Wyatt was a creature of that court, and we must remember that his verse, even that in the first person, presents a carefully curated persona. The author and the speaker are not necessarily the same fella. Now, Wyatt's verse is significant not only because it's quite enjoyable— but also because he really establishes some of the major paradigms of English poetry, ones that will endure at least into the 19th century. He was particularly influenced by Francesco Petrarch, the 14th century Italian poet, who is sometimes credited with inaugurating what we now call the Italian Renaissance. But Wyatt found Petrarch's hendecasyllabic, 11-syllable, line ill-suited to English poetry since it is a quantitative line and it doesn't account for English's accentual patterns. So to remedy this, Wyatt resuscitates the iambic pentameter line Chaucer introduced a century and change before, which had been quite bastardized, incidentally. It had fallen out of use and older texts using it were misread as a four-beat riding rhythm. I can't even imagine how awkward that sounded. Now, despite this resurrection, I should say that Wyatt was not especially concerned about the perfect regularity of his accentual syllabic style line. Smoothness was not Wyatt's jam, not in poetry anyway. He aimed for a more vibrant, vigorous, and expressive effect. In any case, the iambic pentameter line has become standard for nearly 500 years of English poetry. Let's take a look at one of his most famous poems. If you've ever sat in a college Brit Lit survey class, you've heard this one. And there's a reason for its ubiquity. It happens to be very, very good. It's written in a stanza form called Rhyme Royal. It's seven lines of iambic pentameter rhyming A-B-A-B-B-C-C. Now, to provide some variation in longer narrative poems, you can group that stanza in a couple of ways. You can make it a tercet with two couplets, or you can make it a quatrain and a tercet. Here's Thomas Wyatt's They Flee From Me. They flee from me that sometime did me seek with naked foot stalking in my chamber. I have seen them, gentle, tame, and meek, that now are wild, and do not remember that sometime they put themselves in danger to take bread at my hand, and now they range, busily seeking with a continual change. Thanked be fortune, it hath been otherwise twenty times better, but once in special, in thin array, after a pleasant guise, when her loose gown from her shoulders did fall, and she caught me in her arms, long and small, Therewithal sweetly did me kiss, and softly said, Dear heart, how like you this! It was no dream, I lay broad waking, But all is turned through my gentleness Into a strange fashion of forsaking, And I have leave to go of her goodness, And she also to use new newfangledness, But since that I am so kindly served— I would fain know what she hath deserved. The poem exists in a number of manuscripts, intriguing readers with hints of its potentially autobiographical nature. For instance, who are the they of the opening line? Is it Some women? All women? One woman? If it's one woman, then why the plural? Could she be royalty? Now note the tension in the opening line's construction. It's called a Petrarchan contrast, The first half of the line negates or opposes the second half. So we've got fleeing in the first half versus seeking in the second. Furthermore, Wyatt ties these opposites together with an assonant long E vowels. Flee, me, me, seek. The naked foot of line two is both sensual and innocent. But when tied to the verb stalking in his chamber is the suggestion of a hunter, right? A predator. The foot now seems secretive and its owner metaphorized as an animal. Lines three and four emphasize the changeability in the they, from tame to wild, with a pun on gentle, meaning both mild and aristocratic, as in gentlemanly. But the they are fickle, and the first stanza's closing couplet, with another opposition, Contrasts their former submission to their current busy seeking for something new. The rhyme of that couplet, range and change, implies both broadness and mutability. Now, stanza two drives Anne Boleyn fans crazy. Now, Wyatt thanks Dame Fortune, she of the ever turning wheel, that he has had great passions in the past, quote, twenty times better, but once in special. Ho, ho, ho! One lover particularly stands out. I wonder who she is. Who could she be? She certainly seems pretty seductive, huh? Slipping off that thin, loose gown. In fact, she actively stalks, seduces him. She caught him in her arms. More hunting language. And she questions him. Dear heart, how like you this? with those sibilant S's so redolent of temptation serpent. And there's a pun in her address to him. Heart, H-E-A-R-T, being a metonym for lover, right? But the homonymous heart, H-A-R-T, is a male deer, a buck, noisy in the springtime though he may be. He is prey. Lots of folks infer that Wyatt must be talking about Anne Boleyn. Now, while this poem is certainly of the court, it is by no means courtly. Wyatt leaves those medieval conventions behind. Here, the illicit love is physically consummated. There's actual sex with the woman as the pursuer. Then there is only abandonment and betrayal. Usually, in this type of poem, the speaker asserts that all of this came to him as a dream, to protect the guilty, presumably. But why it sags off here too? Stanza three opens with quote, "It was no dream; I lay broad waking." The line is a syllable short, so it's like a curt insistence on the event's reality. By the second line, all is turned, referring again to Fortune's wheel. Through my gentleness, another pun on the dual meanings of gentle, mildness, and nobility. He's just too nice and well-bred for these wild women especially that one so infatuated with newfangleness. Newfangleness is a word that we don't use too much anymore. It means obsessed with new ideas, new experiences, not just a la mode, but ever-changing, never true or stable. The final couplet drips with sarcasm, wondering what has happened to her, what she has deserved for the way she has treated him. The rhyme at the end is really a restatement then, The Latin root of deserve implies one being entitled to something because of good service. Nice use of the irony there, Tommy boy. Perhaps good Sir Tom's most significant contribution to the corpus of English writing is his introduction of the sonnet. The sonnet? Meet English poetry. English poetry? May I introduce the sonnet? The sonnet is among the most durable forms of poetry, having hardly fallen out of fashion in the half-millennium since Wyatt made the introductions. Now, this is not to say he invented the sonnet. He most certainly did not. But as a Petrarch fanboy, he did bring the Italian's form to the sceptered isle. For those not in the know, the word sonnet comes from the Italian for little song, la sonetta. Isn't that lovely? Petrarch established it as a compressed lyric. Fourteen lines, organized as an octave, eight lines, and a sestet, six lines. The octave rhymes A-B-B-A, A-B-B-A, and the sestet either C-D-C, C-D-C, or C-D-E-C-D-E, usually. In the octave, the poet sets up a situation or poses a problem. The sestet comments on the situation or resolves that problem. This shift in tone and intent is called a volta, which is Italian for turn. Petrarch's most famous sonnets are dedicated to a woman called Laura, and he wrote hundreds of them. They're called the canzonieri. Doesn't that sound great? The canzonieri. It sounds like a delicious cream dessert. Very courtly in their tone and content, the essential Petrarchan convention concerns the poet idealizing the unattainable lady. Now Wyatt, in his renderings of Petrarch's sonnets, adapts not only the form, but he also darkens the tone and mood. Wyatt's sonnets typically follow the octave of his mentor, but the sestet is usually broken into a quatrain rhyming c-d-d-c and a couplet rhyming e-e. The Volta generally stays at line nine, and he discards the Petrarchan view of the beloved as idealized and love as transcendent. For Wyatt, unsurprisingly, love is often the occasion for bitterness. Wyatt's most famous sonnet, adapted from Petrarch's Sonnet 190, is called Whoso Lists to Hunt. Whoso Lists to Hunt, I know where is in hind, but as for me, alas, I may no more. The vain travail hath wearied me so sore. I am of them that farthest cometh behind. Yet may I by no means my wearied mind draw from the deer, but as she fleeth afore, fainting I follow. I leave off, therefore, sithens in a net I seek to hold the wind. Who list her hunt I put him out of doubt as well as I may Spend his time in vain. Engraven with diamonds in letters plain there is written, her fair neck round about, Noli mi tengere, for Caesar's I am, and wild for to hold, though I seem tame. To clear up a little of the vocabulary here, list here is a verb meaning wishes or wants or desires, so whoever wants to hunt, and a hind is a female deer. Now, Let's look at the situation posed in that octave. The speaker declares that whoever wishes to go hunting, he knows where there is a deer, but he can't hunt anymore. He has been wearied by the vain effort. And vain here is a self-regarding pun. The effort is both futile and motivated by vanity. Yet he remains obsessed by the thought of the deer, even if capturing her (laughs) is like trying to catch the wind in a net. I love that image. That's so good. Notice how Wyatt nicely deploys alliteration to sonically link concepts and effects. The first line with its breathiness, the sighing. Lines four and five, the F sound. They sound fleeting and fast, breathless. And there's a nice concluding complement to the rhythmical subtlety of the opening line. We say a sonnet in English is 14 lines of iambic pentameter that doesn't mean that every line has to be rigidly so. Wyatt begins his sonnet with two trochees, that is, a rhythm opposite to the am. Whereas the am is an unstressed syllable followed by a stressed syllable, the troche is a stressed followed by an unstressed. So the effect is a sense of driving down. Sometimes we call the troche a falling foot because the beat implies a somberness, a weariness, a glumness, which works perfectly in the first line, whoso list to hunt. The accent falls on syllables one and three, and given the bitterness of the poem, that downbeat feels world-weary, feels defeated. But syllables five on switch the meter iambically, the rising foot. When he recalls the hind, he perks up a bit, as I say, it's subtle, but details like that separate the poets from the poetasters. So we hear the octave rhymes hind, more, sore, behind, mind, afore, therefore, wind. Ooh. Then we get doubt, vain, plain, about. And finally the couplet am and tame. So we've got some examples of what are called half rhyme or slant rhyme almost but not quite perfect. Usually slant rhymes, half rhymes, off rhymes are used by a poet to indicate some dissonance or awkwardness in the speaker's thoughts. Sidebar. Attentive listeners may have noted the slant rhymes in They Flee From Me. Lines two and four of each stanza have these off rhymes. I haven't sorted out a reason why, actually. It may be merely a function of the change in pronunciation from Wyatt's day to our own, but I'm not sure. So, answers on the back of a $20 bill. End sidebar. The volta narrows the focus of line one. The prey, the hind, is now a particular her. And by eliminating the syllable so from line one in line nine, the stress moves forward. Whoso is a trochee. Who list is an I am. Wyatt opens the sestet with the accents falling on the verbs, list and hunt. Then he drops a whole boatload of ambiguity and equivocation on us. The second half of line nine, I put him out of doubt, uses an internal rhyme to draw attention to the end rhyme. And that word doubt is a rather curious property. Have you ever heard of contronyms? They're odd little words that are their own antonyms, their own opposites. So, for instance, the word clip means to both fasten something and to detach something. Right? Dust means to sprinkle something with fine particles, or it means to remove fine particles. Actually, the word fine means both adequate and excellent. Anyway, Back in the days of yore, let's say, for the sake of argument, the 16th century, doubt was a contronym, meaning both to be skeptical and to suspect. So, if you say, I doubt it will rain, it could mean that you don't believe it will rain, or indeed, you do believe it will rain. Isn't language a curious thing? Now, stick a pin in that for a moment. Let's look at the line that follows, Quote, as well as I may spend his time in vain. The syntax rather tangles us up. Does it mean that the prospective hunter, to whom the sonnet is addressed, like Wyatt will waste his time? Or does it mean that Wyatt is deliberately wasting the hunter's time by waxing poetic about an unattainable deer? And then you fling the ambiguous doubt on top of that and you really get something of a muddle. Now, I reckon the main sense is that Wyatt assures him that he will strive in vain, which is the same pun as before, right? Arrogantly and futilely. But the subtext seems much more manipulative and enigmatic, which provides a stark contrast to perhaps the poem's most famous image, the diamond collar round the hind's neck with the, quote, plain words, Noli mi tengere, for Caesar's I am. The Latin means, touch me not, and it comes from the Gospel of St. John. Christ speaks these words to Mary Magdalene upon her discovery of his resurrection. And there's also a legend from Pliny the Elder that some 300 years after Julius Caesar's death, his deer lived on with that inscription about their necks. So we've got both a sacred and a secular echo to these words. Now, who could possessive Caesar be in this poem? If you said Henry VIII, give yourself a cookie. Yes, probably Henry, the head of both the English church and the English state, sacred and secular. Well, then, who is the unwinnable hind? Is the poem simply an elaborate warning against poaching the king's game? No, surely, surely? Perhaps possibly. The hind is Queen Anne if that's the case, the Greek translation of her collar casts an interesting shadow across the relationship between Wyatt and Anne in they flee from me. The Koina Greek of nola mi means something like, stop clinging to me. Now, isn't that intriguing? Let me go, she says to the speaker. Stop holding on to me. This implies that his longing, his pursuit is ongoing. It's like, present progressive tense, if we were thinking of it grammatically, rather than a warning of a single moment. Now, you may have noticed that both poems make use of the hunt as a metaphor for sexual conquest and or frustration. Now, here's a bit of something for all you word nerds. Venus, the goddess of love, venison, deer flesh, delicious by the way, and venom, all share a common linguistic root, the Proto-Indo-European word, when, W-E-N, which means something like to desire or to long for. Now, from there, we get the Latin venari, meaning to hunt. Like, if you hunt for something, you must want it, right? Now, that meaning of desire also gives the Roman goddess her name, Venus. After William the Conqueror and his descendants established French as England's prestige language, the word venison came to mean the meat of any animal killed hunting. Eventually, it meant specifically deer meat. And lastly, the word that became venom in English developed from the Latin venenum, a drink supposed to increase desire, a love potion, basically. Now, I shall leave it to your own fertile imaginations as to why venom came to mean poison. Anyway, it's an intriguing connection that makes the Hunt analogy and Wyatt's bitter tone about it all the more rich. Makes me wonder, too, if, in some sense, Anne Boleyn is Wyatt's Laura. She seems to haunt him and his poetry. Tantalizingly close but ever out of reach, I don't know that he ever does stop clinging to her. He wrote a riddle poem called What Word Is That Which Changeth Not? And the answer, cunningly, is Anna. There's a story, it's probably apocryphal, that while reading his poetry aloud to Anne while she did some needlework, he plucked a ribboned jewel off of her as a keepsake, cheeky monkey, A bit later, Wyatt's bowling with the king, and they start arguing over a shot. Wyatt claimed the shot, but the king demurred. Wyatt, I tell thee it is mine, pointing with the royal finger on which he conspicuously wore Anne's ring. Wyatt, nonplussed, rejoined, If it may like your majesty to give me leave to measure it, I hope it will be mine. Now with what did he measure the shot? with the ribbon from which Anne's jewel conspicuously hung. That takes an immense quantity of testicular fortitude. I doubt the bowl's distance was what these two men were really measuring. As I say, the story is too on-the-nose to be really credible, but it surely gives us a glimpse of the vanity and obsession and not to put too fine a point on it, sexual possessiveness of the Henrician court. If Wyatt really did lament the chaotic tangle of intrigue and loyalties of the court, he did little to assuage it. Seems like he rather deftly rode that wave, eh, with a couple of notable wipeouts, it must be admitted. And he did so while contributing rather significantly to English literature— Beyond the pentameter line and the sonnet, Wyatt is the first major poet to speak self-reflectively in English verse. The poems we looked at today are dramatically first-person. And while the persona may be a construction, the very recognition that first-person interiority is a thing, that one's personal experiences deserve contemplation and then aesthetic rendering— is a major development in the Western evolution of the self, the thinking I. Thanks for listening to the Classic English Literature Podcast. You'll hear from me soon.